hppodcraft.com. You ask me to explain why I am afraid of a draft of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room, and seem nauseated and repelled when the chill of evening creeps through the heat of a mild autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do to a bad odor, and I am the last to deny the impression. What I will do is to relate the most horrible circumstance I ever encountered, and leave it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation of my peculiarity. I judge not guilty. <laughs> that, that was the opening of H.P. Lovecraft's Cool Air, uh, read by Rachel Lackey. Yes. I hear that Lovecraft himself had an aversion to cold. Right, he did. He did indeed. Uh, we, we know this from uh, a letter he wrote to Robert E. Howard, mm-hmm. which said, I'm going to not read you this whole thing, but Lovecraft goes on a lot about this. He says, I can't write decently under 73 degrees or 74. From uh, there down to freezing, the effects of a falling temperature is simply increasing discomfort and sluggishness. But after that, it begins to be painful to breathe. I can't go out. And he just keeps going on about the different <laughs> well, temperatures, how it affects his heart and his condition. And wow. uh, I mean, if it was if it was interesting, I would keep reading it. But it's just Lovecraft really didn't like the cold. Wow! And thank God the Snuggie hadn't been invented at that point, <laughs> because we might not have we might not have ever gotten the story. You know, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, and for our English uh, listeners, seventy three degrees is twenty two point seven Celsius. Also, for our English listeners, the Snuggie is a blanket with uh, sleeves. I don't know if they, uh, <laughs> they, don't have, they advertise I don't know if they have the Snuggie over here. Maybe they yeah. have a slanket? They might have the slanket, which is what? just like the Snuggie. The slanket yeah. is the British equivalent of the Snuggie? I don't know. It might be a, a, a different <laughs> brand. I've seen a sl- the slanket. You've seen it there? Which is a, a sleeve blanket. Not here. Oh, oh I see. I got you. So the, the, but those are the two products on the market. Those are the two products that are basically blankets with armhole sleeves in them. By the way, um, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. And I like this story, but I've never been a fan of that title either. It seems a little weak to me. Yeah, yeah. Why isn't it cold there? Well, because it's only 55 degrees, which really isn't that isn't that cold. In fact, right now outside here in, in Yorkshire, it's 46 mm. degrees in May. Okay. So, you know. So you, you would call that cool air? I would call that, I'd say that cool air. Yeah, sure. But it's like a letter away from Kool-Aid. <laughs> and that doesn't scare me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, well, that Kool-Aid man kind of scares me a little bit. He's a little scary. He just busts through walls. He doesn't care. He's a little Lovecraftian. Yeah, he, he doesn't. He busts through walls. Do you drink out of him? No, Does, you don't. Is That's that okay? totally inappropriate. He tips over and pours into your glass out of his head and then you drink that. Yeah, it would be really oh. it would be really screwed up if you actually drank out of him. You know, that's not appropriate. <laughs> the Kool-Aid man does freak me out a little bit um, as does most things that freak most people out like darkness, silence, solitude. It is a mistake to fancy that horror is associated inextricably with darkness, silence and solitude. I found it in the glare of mid-afternoon, in the clangor of a metropolis and in the teeming midst of a shabby and commonplace rooming house with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men by my side. In the spring of 1923, I had secured some dreary and unprofitable magazine work in the city of New York, and being unable to pay any substantial rent, began drifting from one cheap boarding establishment to another in search of a room which might combine the qualities of decent cleanliness and durable furnishings and very reasonable price. 
It soon developed that I had only a choice between different evils, but after a time I came upon a house in West 14th Street, which disgusted me much less than the others I had sampled. I mean, I, I can I can dig his situation. He's poor. He's trying to write for a living, so his, his options are limited, and, you know, he doesn't want to live in the dingiest place in the world, so... No. No, no. We've, we've experienced this, uh, you and I, specifically. We, we lived in a... Uh, in a an old recording studio that didn't have a, a, a proper bathroom. Well, it had, it had a toilet, but it didn't have a bathroom, so we had a basin in the in the bathroom that we took a shower in with one of those... You remember this, obviously. I'm talking more to the listeners. Are you asking me if I remember it? <laughs> do you remember this? <laughs> I do. It was squalid. It was squalid. It was, it was pretty squalid. Right when I first moved out here to Los Angeles, that's the place. There were three of us living in there. There were there was carpeting on the walls, and um, there was a, a uh-huh. crazy homeless old woman who lived on our front porch, uh, Christine. Yeah. Um, and it was next door to a garage that only fixed uh, Volkswagen Bugs, hence the name Bug Alley. Um, although I could have gotten that name for a number of other reasons. I don't think people were supposed to be living there because it was an industrial zone. I, it was. I, you said this at, at my wedding. It was like kind of a, a Depression-era Three Stooges kind of thing where we were like actually slept in the same bed. <laughs> yeah, all three of us yeah. in the same room. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the, the the one source of water thing was the was the worst part, you know. Yeah. Because you our- do your dishes in one in sink, and then you have to fill up the camping bag to shower from the same sink. Exactly. And, uh, it was deplorable. It was pretty terrible. But I, you know, this guy, this this sounds like the, you know, freaking Taj Mahal compared to where we lived. Right. Well, he decides, so he, the protagonist here picks a place. Actually, it's funny. He comes to regard his place as uh, at least a bearable place to hibernate till one might really live again. Which, <laughs> I, you know, actually I thought was really good writing, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it is good <laughs> Certainly writing. when we were living in Bug Alley, I kind of felt that way, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. But sometimes it seems like... No matter where you are, you could anybody could be living in a constant state of that attitude, which is, you know, things aren't exactly how I want them now, so I'm just sort of hibernating until everything's exactly how I want it to be. Right, and, and check it out. That's never going to happen, buddy. So, it's never going to happen, and sometimes you, you know, you wind up wasting so much time because you're waiting for, I don't know, once I get this, then I'll start living. Once I get this car or this apartment or this job true true well you know this place this actual um the address that he uh, the west 14th street place uh-huh. is an actual location 317 west 14th street where uh-huh. uh, his friend george kirk lived briefly in 1925 and this actual place is now like a bed and breakfast hotel in in, oh, okay. in chelsea you can go it's called chelsea pines and i'll put the uh, link to it in your show note in our show notes anybody's in new york and they want to stay at the cool air place you can and they even have it on the website too that this is the this was the inspired uh, setting of hp uh, lovecraft's cool air so but it oh, looks cool. nice actually it looks very nice well anyway after living in this rented room <laughs> at this place for about three weeks uh our our bookish writing protagonist hears a spattering on the floor and he sees that there's a leak coming from a ceiling right and there's this pungent smell of ammonia he asks the landlady about it who's the spanish woman named herrera herrera who uh yeah, Herrero, uh, Mrs. Herrero, who who comes in and she delivers all the exposition for him, and I, it's written <laughs> it, it, it's written phonetically as well. So oh yeah, I, it's pretty tough. in, in it's... really funny way. It, I couldn't help thinking it was Speedy Gonzalez that was delivering <laughs> the news to him, or 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 more like Slowpoke Rodriguez, you know? Oh right, so, yeah, his cousin. Uh, and yeah, Slowpoke okay. was at, it's a lot more like Slowpoke is how I heard it in my head. Too. Yeah, yeah. 
But it's all very- his own housework he do, his little room. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much like a picture in the house where he, Lovecraft does the phonetic writing. The Solomon Ammoniac, that man used for keep him cool. <laughs> oh, Speedy, I'm so hungry. <laughs> So Slowpoke Rodriguez tells him that upstairs is is Dr. Munoz. He lives yeah. right up, up right above him. Yes, Dr. Munoz. He's a doctor. He's getting sicker all the time. Um, he and as a result of whatever illness he has, he can't have any warmth, and he takes these funny smelling baths. And, and she, she says, you know, he was a great doctor once, but he's fallen in the world quite a bit. See, uh, her <laughs> her I think she said her, her father in Barcelona had heard of him. He was a famous doctor of some kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the protagonist then goes on to describe their meeting, which was, which actually is quite dramatic, but is expressed rather dryly. He says, I might never have known Dr. Munoz had it not been for the heart attack that suddenly seized me one forenoon as I sat writing in my room. Physicians had told me of the danger of those spells, and I knew there was no time to be lost. <laughs> Whoa. Lo- wait a minute. Yeah. A heart attack is a spell? <laughs> <laughs> like the physicians have warned me that apparently these heart attacks are no good. Who knew? You know, when I hear the word attack, I'm usually prepared for fun. I, I had no idea. Exactly. Yeah. So he has his heart attack spell, and he drags himself up to the doctor's apartment and knocks on the door. The kind of says through the door, "Excuse me, I believe I'm having a heart attack. Could you help me?" Perhaps the doctor lets him in. And uh, he's surprised to find out that the doctor's got a really kicking pad. Yeah. You know, this place looks great. You you wouldn't expect it in this squalid environment, but he really has done it up nice on the inside. Mm-hmm. And of course, he sees the doctor as well. Right. The figure before me was short but exquisitely proportioned and clad in somewhat formal dress of perfect cut and fit. A high-bred face of masterful, though not arrogant expression was adorned by a short iron-gray full beard and an old-fashioned pierced nay shielding the full dark eye. Nevertheless, as I saw Dr. Munoz in that blast of cool air, I felt a repugnance which nothing in his aspect could justify. Only his lividly inclined complexion and coldness of touch could have afforded a physical basis for this feeling, and even these things should have been excusable considering the man's known invalidism. It might too have been the singular cold that alienated me, for such chilliness was abnormal on so hot a day. And the abnormal always excites aversion, distrust, and fear. Yeah, it does. Um, he's got those what I, pince-nez, the, pince-nez? the glasses that clasp onto the bridge of the nose. Oh, right. Um, That's what those are. Yeah, like Teddy Roosevelt used to wear a pair oh, of those. Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. Anyway, the, the doctor starts fixing him up <laughs> yes. immediately. And he gives him some drugs. I, I don't know exactly what you can do for a heart attack. Yeah, I, I don't know. In your apartment, but he does something for it. It, and it, it's a funny line where he says he sought to distract our narrator from his seizure by telling him of his theories and experiments. <laughs> but it, he sought to distract him from his seizure. <laughs> that's also, that's like the mad scientist answer to everything, you know? Right. My God, you're bleeding. Perhaps I should tell you of my theories and ex- my experiments. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you're lost. You need directions? Here, let me tell you some uh, of my theories and about my experiments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But so while our guy's having a seizure, he tells him, well, I think that if a person is properly maintained, that they can stay alive no matter what. Yeah. You know, if, if their organs fail, even if they don't have a heart, he says, mm-hmm. as long as most of the tissue is properly maintained and if they have that sheer force of will 
mm-hmm. that can stay alive. That's my theory, and that's been what my experiments are based on. Right, exactly. And he says, you know, uh, keeping it, uh, the habitation cool around 55 or 56 mm-hmm. degrees, which is uh, 12.8 degrees Celsius for our English uh-huh. or uh, European listeners, uh, that, that will preserve the, the flesh. It'll maintain it. Yeah. yeah, well, and he's has to, he has to do that himself. He himself is sick. He's got some illness that means he has to stay cold. Yes. So that's why he has to keep it in his apartment, 55, yeah. 56 degrees. And he uses a, a gasoline engine that uses an ammonia cooling system. The, our narrator sometimes can hear the pumps from that cooling right, system right. in his own room downstairs. And, and you know, this, uh, this cooling system uh, was something that Lovecraft actually had a little bit of uh, familiarity with. In one of his letters to his, I think it was to his aunt, he talks about how there was... Uh, a movie theater that that used this ammonia cooling system. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And she kept saying that the theater was hot, and he said, well, it has that new ammonia cooling system. There must be cheapskates because they're not using it, you know, because, uh-huh. you know, it's brand new, and it should be working just fine. And that was just kind of a strange thing. And that, was, that, that letter predated the story, so it might have been something that he was thinking about. So the doctor fixes our guy up, and so our guy is totally devoted to him now. And, you know, no matter how he feels about that, that slight repugnance, he feels like he owes him. And, you know, he says he, he paid him frequent overcoated calls, <laughs> which is such a great <laughs> phrase. So he keeps getting treatment from the doctor mm-hmm. and uh, going regularly to get seen. Right, yeah. And in these meetings, the doctor... Over a period of days, he, he gets these. Right, right. And, uh, and the doctor keeps telling him about his, his theories and experiments. And uh, he sees that the doctor also is mixing in these ancient medieval magic things into what he does. Right. Um, he's got all these books on the shelves that are contain ancient, uh, what does he say? Uh, incantations of the medievalist and cryptic formula of rare psychological stimuli. Is that yeah, what right. <laughs> psychological stimuli. He's sort of like Doctor Strange. <laughs> well, yeah, he's sort of, he's a medical doctor and he practices the black arts. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Similar to, to Doctor Strange in that way. But that's a, a common thing that's in Lovecraft's writing uh, is you know mixing science with you know mysticism. Yeah, he thinks the doctor thinks that using some of these ancient incantations, they actually do have physical properties of some kind, or saying them does some. It actually has an effect on people. And he had a partner in his previous life, Doctor Torres of Valencia. Not Valencia, California, I imagine. No, I think the, the original Valencia. It would be great if it was Valencia of California. <laughs> that's where Magic Mountain is. And, uh... <laughs> Their offices were right under uh, Batman the Ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's so lame. Uh, that's so lame. That's awesome. That is not going in. Well, he had a partner, Dr. Torres, and Dr. Torres helped him with this illness that he contracted 18 years before, but Dr. Torres himself died as a result of their experimenting and whatever illness this is. He mentions him as, you know, the person who had shared his early experiments and had had been able to sort of minister on him some treatments before he himself went. Exactly. Um, But it's, you know, things are getting bad for Munoz. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean... And they also talk about some more details about this whole temperature business and how if he keeps it colder, you know, it'll it'll be it'll preserve him more. And he starts using these Egyptian spices and things too. He's burning incense in his apartment. He's got these sort of Egyptian death rituals going on or uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing in there. And he's dropping the temperature colder and colder. Basically, he's sort of in panic mode and so he's he's using more coldness and he's using more magic stuff to try and, you know, Right. Stop whatever his illness is from happening. He's not eating anymore, and uh, he's spending a lot of his time also writing these 
documents to other physicians. He acquired a habit of writing long documents of some sort, which he carefully sealed and filled with injunctions that I transmit them after his death to certain persons whom he named, for the most part lettered East Indians, but including a once celebrated French physician now generally thought dead, and about whom the most inconceivable things had been whispered. As it happened, I burned all these papers undelivered and unopened. His aspect and voice became utterly frightful, and his presence almost unbearable. One September day, an unexpected glimpse of him induced an epileptic fit in a man who had come to repair his electric desk lamp, a fit for which he prescribed effectively, whilst keeping himself well out of sight. That man, oddly enough, had been through the terrors of the Great War without having incurred any frights or blurrah. Then, in the middle of October, a horror of horrors came with stupefying suddenness. So that guy, you know, he just had a glimpse of the doctor, and that gave him an epileptic fit. Yeah, that's that's pretty strange. Going back just a little bit further in that is the part where he says one of them was a once-celebrated French physician, now generally thought dead. Is that? I I think it was in Kenneth Height's book. He says that that's a reference to something that Lovecraft is eventually going to write about. Oh, but really? he doesn't say wh- what it is. So I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about there. Listeners uh, probably do know, so hopefully they could, uh, somebody can write in and tell us what they think it is, who they think it is. So the horror of horrors that comes is one night the refrigerating device the doctor uses breaks down. Um, and this happens like at 11 yeah. at night or something like that. So nothing's open. They need a new piston mm-hmm. to get the thing running again, but they can't get that until the morning. So he's got problems. Basically, he calls down to the the narrator, and the narrator comes up to you know try and uh, and help right. him. They start making calls, making inquiries, um, and basically what he has to do is get ice for the old man. And uh, they put the old man gets into the bathtub and demands ice, and they keep bringing it up for him. I actually I don't think they pour it in the tub for him. They leave it outside the door, and then he comes to get it. And he's all, he's all covered up in bandages and things. Yeah, right. In the fact, door. the doctor, while he's raging in anger about the fact that his machinery is falling apart, he throws his hands over his eyes and runs into the bathroom. And when he comes back out, he's got a bandage over his face. Yeah. And then, you know, the narrator never sees his eyes again, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a really crazy scene. Yeah. I think I think his eyeballs popped out, and he's just holding them in with some bandage. Oh. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and just to think of, I, I mean, it really is, the whole thing is a crazy scene. This blindfolded old man is laying in a bathtub covered in ice, screaming at his neighbor, more ice, more ice, you know? It's very odd, yes. I, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Well, uh, so the narrator is busy about getting that ice for him and bringing it back. Yeah, and um, then he, he has kind of hands, hands the job off to somebody else because he's gonna he gets on the horn trying to figure out. Exactly. Who can come fix this machine or the part that he needs? You know, he's so he's just dealing with that while somebody else is getting the ice. The the somebody else, though, is a seedy looking loafer (laughs) that he just (laughs) finds outside. He says, Young man, you look seedy. Let me give you a very important job. (laughs) I mean, apparently, you know, that was just the only kid that was available who would take money to run and deliver ice. Right. Um, Although, finally, he, he runs around all that next day trying to find the piston. I think it takes him to like 1 p.m. or something like that to get it. Yeah. Uh, and he finally returns to the apartment building with uh, the part and two sturdy and intelligent-looking mechanics. But by the time he gets back, everything's crazy at the boarding house. Yep. Um, the lounger he'd hired, the seedy-looking loafer, had gotten curious 
and looked in the bathroom at whoever this, you know, he'd seen the blindfolded crazy old man. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it freaked him out, so he just ran away. And uh, there's a terrible odor coming from the doctor's apartment and this dripping sound within. They open the place up, finally. Mm-hmm. The uh, the landlady gets uh, some kind of key, or she's got a skeleton key, or she picks a lock, I don't remember. But they, they get the door open, and there's a trail of fluid from the bathroom to the hall door. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a pool of ick around a desk where something's been written Mm -hmm. and then the the trail ends on the couch he doesn't want to describe what's on the couch you know but he does go and and grab this note and he's sort of able to puzzle some things out it says uh, the nauseous words seemed well nigh incredible in that yellow sunlight with the clatter of cars and motor trucks ascending clamorously from crowded 14th street yet i confess that i believed them then Whether I believe them now, I honestly do not know. There are things about which it is better not to speculate. And all I can say is that I hate the smell of ammonia and grow faint in a draft of unusually cool air. The end, ran that noisome scrawl, is here. No more ice. The man looked and ran away. Warmer every minute, and the tissues can't last. I fancy you know. What I said about the will and the nerves and the preserved body after the organs ceased to work. It was good theory, but couldn't keep up indefinitely. There was a gradual deterioration I had not foreseen. Dr. Torres knew, but the shock killed him. He couldn't stand what he had to do. He had to get me in a strange dark place when he minded my letter and nursed me back. And the organs never would work again. It had to be done my way. Artificial preservation. For you see, I died that time 18 years ago. There you go. The final last line in italics. He's been dead for 18 years. Oh, no. So all of his experiments were just uh, keeping his dead body animated. Yeah. Crazy. And that's the end of the story. story. It's it's very simple and short. I I forgot how short it was when I reread it, but... I'm pretty familiar with it. We're friends with uh, Brian Moore, who directed in, I think it was 1999 or probably earlier than that. He did a version of Cool Air uh-huh. that you can get on DVD. And uh, Yeah, that's part of that uh, the Lovecraft collection or something? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first volume of the Lovecraft mm-hmm. collection. And it's really well done. He did a really great job with it. And there's been a ton, like I said uh, a few weeks ago, the Night Gallery episode had an adaptation of yeah. there, which had, not unlike us today, had a, the narrator character was a female. She was a, a woman. Oh, okay. The character itself was a, oh. was a woman in that episode? Yeah. Well, there have been a lot of adaptations of the story. Oh, yeah, many. It's Well, I think because it takes place in a very, um, it's easy to shoot. The locations, you know, there's not a lot of crazy special effects. It's right. just, you know, some people in a room in a house talking and, you know, a gross, creepy dead body. And that could be whatever you want it to be at the end of the whole thing. <laughs> this has a lot of similarities to some of Lovecraft's other work. Uh, you've mm-hmm. got uh, specifically Reanimator. Um, yeah. Where you've got the physician who's obsessed with, you know, preserving life. Although this is a little different, sort of asserts that it's the force of will itself that is keeping him alive. Mm-hmm. And it's it's less medical and more maybe metaphysical. Metaphysical, yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. Uh, but you know, whereas Reanimator sort of anticipated adrenaline and and that sort of thing, this to an extent anticipates cryonics and cryogenic freezing mm-hmm. a oh, little yeah. bit. You know, which uh, didn't become something that people were really sort of obsessed with for many years. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I remember I saw this '80s 
television movie called Chiller. It's a Wes Craven movie, which I didn't realize until I looked it up again, but Wes Craven directed it. I just happened to watch it like with my mom on TV. It scared the heck out of me, but it was had the stupidest plot. It was like this, uh, this wealthy young man gets cryogenically frozen for 10 years, and when they unfreeze him and they bring him back, he doesn't have a soul. No. <laughs> so he's murdering a lot of people, and he's cruel to animals, and you know he's just generally a bad guy. For, yeah, it scared the crap out of me, though. It sounds totally unscary, I have to say. It does, but and it probably is, but I <laughs> but I liked it then. Some other some interesting facts. There's many about this uh, particular story. Uh huh. One is that it was uh, written in March 1926, but it wasn't published until uh, March uh, uh, 1928. So two. two about two years after he wrote it. Okay. And of course he tried to get it published in Weird Tales, but Weird Tales wasn't having it. Uh, again, the the um, publisher, Farnsworth, thought it was the ending might be a little too graphic, and so turned him down. That is so strange. Yeah. I mean, it must really be because of the backlash against The yeah. Loved Dead. Yeah, the Because Loved Dead. they're really, what's so gruesome about it? I mean, Nothing. It, he doesn't even describe It's all in suggestion. No, yeah. he doesn't describe anything. He just says... There's something on the couch. Yeah, and that he doesn't even want to say what it is. Yeah, it's, I think, and maybe Farnsworth was just a little mad at Lovecraft, or maybe, I don't know, uh, the exactly why you know that would have happened, but... You know, yeah, didn't. but it eventually got published in this this really crappy magazine called uh, Tales of Magic and Mystery. That's where it was first published. <laughs> it was that was a crappy magazine. How do yeah. you know that? It should well, just from what people say about it, and you didn't get paid very uh, okay. much, and it was you know it just kind of had lower quality writing in it. Right. And um, some other interesting facts is Lovecraft's um, friend Frank Long, who uh-huh. uh, went to. New York University, he had uh, a heart condition and a heart attack specifically. Oh, really? Yeah. I, he didn't die from the heart attack, but it was something Lovecraft was friends with him when it happened, so that might have had a connection to there. You know, I find it, um, this just occurred to me, and it's kind of jumping back a little bit, but earlier he had said, um, you know, when Dr. Munoz was when his health is really fading fast, he was writing all of these letters to the, you know, to the French physician, etc. Right. To all these different people that he sealed up and he asked the narrator to mail for him once he died. And the ma- the narrator says right then and there, of course, I destroyed all of these. I destroyed all of these letters. Yeah. And he didn't send them. You know, did he read them first at least? I mean, what if they <laughs> What if it was like willing money to people who needed it or, or just yeah. saying, you know, after all these years, I can finally say it. You know, you're my best friend <laughs> or something like that. And he just completely just burned it and threw it away because he assumed it was, you know, about science people should. Or maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a physician who wouldn't be as interested in preserving, um, you know, life after death. But maybe he's working on some kind of cure for cancer or something. And yeah. this little bit of information would really help. <laughs> yeah. I think it was a really rash reaction to, to, to what he saw. Yeah, what a bad thing to do. Yeah, and nobody really got hurt. You know, the the guy that ended up dying was, you know, he's been dead for 18 years. So he he got 18 yeah. bonus years. So what's, yeah. what's so bad about it? I don't know. Come on. That's what I say. Anyway, that just occurred to me. Oh, and uh, supposedly uh, Munoz uh, may have been modeled after Lovecraft had a neighbor in Brooklyn uh, who was Dr. Love, who was a Spanish, you know, a Spanish descent doctor. And uh-huh. um, his name was Doctor Love. <laughs> was his name was really Doctor Love? Yeah, William Larthrop Love. And wow. uh, he was actually state senator for a time and sort of a local celebrity. And he lived really close to Lovecraft in Brooklyn. So, are you familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's facts in the case of M. Valdemar? 
Uh, I, it, I'm familiar with it in that it is a story in my complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, but I've actually not ever read it. Yeah, I haven't read it either. Uh, but supposedly, I know that this story is is supposed to be somewhat based off. Of it. We're doing a, a great job here as literary um, <laughs> critics, discussionists, whatever you want to call us. Uh, yeah, I've never read it either. But supposedly, it's very similar to this story. And hey, this isn't the Edgar Allan Poe podcast. It's right. Thank you. That's what I was yeah. saying all all these last few seconds in my head to myself. <laughs> but uh, Lovecraft was talking about this story specifically in his uh, supernatural horror and literature, which he wrote at this time. Oh, okay. And he he has defended himself later and said, you know, actually, I didn't, you know, that had nothing to do with this. This was more inspired by Arthur Mackin's The Novel of the White Powder. So that's kind of where Lovecraft got the sort of kernel of an the idea. The idea for the story. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So that's 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 it for my fun fact. When I said that the adaptation was called Chill, I was gonna. I almost said, and not even to be funny, the Chill Factor, which is that Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> Skeet Ulrich uh, movie. I think I think they did like speed in an ice cream truck, basically, right? Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Or was it on a train? I think it was on a. Was it on a train? They couldn't stop the train. I don't remember. I thought it was an ice cream truck, but what do I know? I don't know anything. Again, that's uh, much like Edgar Allan Poe. I I didn't see that. Yeah, you're not. This isn't the Cuba Gooding Jr. podcast. <laughs> it should be. It should be. That's and folks, this is uh, the time that we announce our, our next podcast. The yeah, Cuba, the Cuba, Cuba Gooding, Gooding Jr. Jr. Literary podcast. Literary podcast. Is it literary podcast? <laughs> Celluloid podcast. Next week, snow dogs. That's. <laughs> Well, okay, so... Actually, what do we have next week? Next week is... Hold on to your socks, buddy, because it's right. happening. What? The Call of Cthulhu. Oh, my God. Finally, yeah. we've arrived. We have arrived. The good stuff is is, is yeah. happening. Bam. Yeah, good. Yeah, we're we're there now. I mean, there's uh, there's nothing but real real good... I mean, of course, there's still going to be some, some laughable things coming up, but... Yeah, but... Uh, for the most part, it's good stuff coming up. Yeah, we're getting the goods, man. We're getting the goods. And with um, with that one, I'm sure that's not going to be a single-part episode. Yeah, we haven't really planned it that much yet, but... um. Uh, I'm sure it'll be multi-part. And the story itself of Call of Cthulhu is broken into multiple parts, so it shouldn't be a problem. Three parts, actually. So maybe we'll do a three-part episode. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. Who knows? I don't know what we're going to do. We'll figure it out. Two parts, three parts. We'll figure it out as we go. And we'll probably have some guests and some fun stuff. uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens next week. Absolutely. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. <laughs>